This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Hey guys, uh, how are we? Arnoldo here, uh, lead pastor at Anchor Southwest and it's such a pleasure to be with you today to Uh, It's a real honor to be allowed in your home today. Uh, Big shout out to our city family and our Southwest family. Uh, We miss you. I miss you so much. And so it is, um, I'm grateful that we get to at least share in word and song and in table, um, even if that means doing that digitally uh, together. So today we're going to be continuing in our series uh, in the book of Exodus. And I'm really excited to go through our text today, um, and it's going to be about complaining. Complaining is nothing new. Even though it seems like our late, modern, hyper-capitalist society has made it easier to foster a culture of complaining, complaining is nothing new. Today, there are whole departments of businesses that are devoted to complaints, and yet, Complaining is nothing new. Call it a complaint, a a grumble, a murmur. At my house, we call it a, a whinge. But us humans, we have always had the ability, the knack to express our contempt and our disappointment when our expectations have not been met. This here on the screen is the oldest customer complaint that we have ever discovered, which is held at the uh, British Museum. Small little tablet, Uh, but it is a tablet that records a customer complaint. It's dated back to about 1750 BCE, which is at least a couple hundred years before our earliest attempt to date the Exodus. This is old. And in it, Um, there's this customer, uh, Nani, who purchased copper from uh, a merchant called E. Nasir. And apparently it talks about how E. Nasir has treated him terribly, how uh, the, the grade of copper was horrendous, terrible customer service. He goes on and on again. If E. If e. Nasir had a manager, you better believe that Nani called that manager, right? Can I speak to your manager. It would have taken a lot longer back then, uh, but surely he would have complained. He or she would have complained. Complaining is nothing new. It's certainly a phenomenon that we know and that we experience personally, whether uh, it's us who are grumbling uh, about someone or something or being complained about. We all know it. And in our story today, we're going to find ourselves immersed in this tussle between the recently emancipated people of Yahweh and the God who rescued them. The God who rescued them through the Sea of Reeds or or the Red Sea, as it shows up in our text. And what we're going to quickly realize is that this is a very different passage than the two previously preached on, two just passed. Matt led us through the greatest act of salvation in the entire Hebrew Scriptures. 
The story of the Passover and the Exodus are the pinnacle of the Jewish story and imagination. No other story comes even close in significance. And you can imagine this ragged people enslaved and beaten and bruised and battered and exhausted and forsaken. They're emancipated through the advocacy of Moses and Aaron. And on their way out, the Egyptians give them this gift of gold, which is going to be really, really important in a couple weeks. And they're being chased by Pharaoh and his armies. And they come to the impassable Sea of Reeds, known as the Red Sea in our text. And the Lord parts the sea and they walk through because he parted the sea through a strong east wind all night and they walk through dry ground i love that i love that god used a strong east wind all night i was very accustomed as i was growing up thinking that this happened in an instant if you've ever seen the 19 i think it's 1955 um uh exodus movie about moses the ten called the ten commandments uh, the parting of the Red Sea takes about seven seconds cinematically. And I thought, well, then that must, that, you know, that's pretty accurate. But it took all night. And I love that Yahweh uses the natural created order for his salvific purposes. And so the Israelites walk through the Sea of Reeds on dry ground. And the horde of Egyptians are drowned in the sea. And a celebration like no other ensues. And James Wong took us through that text last week. In fact, Exodus 15 is a poetic celebration of how Yahweh rescued his people. And so they cross over and the dread that they must have felt in their stomachs, in their chests, now turn into relief and praise. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh prevails. His people are free to worship. But on the other side of praise is hardship. On the other side of redemption is trouble. On the other side of rescue is hunger and thirst. On the other side of emancipation is a wilderness. What is going to happen to these people while they uh, uh, sit between the space of promises made and promises kept? Who are we going to be in the space between? How are we going to respond in that liminal space? What are we going to do when worship turns into wilderness? And the wilderness between, this wilderness is, is the wilderness between redemption and consummation. And what this text is going to reveal to us today is this, that life in fact is a wilderness. That grumbling is in fact bad for you. And despite all that, God remains near. But before we get into the text, let me pray for us today. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you, in fact, are good, that you, in fact, are here, uh, that wherever we're meeting today, uh, you are with us. Help me to forget the things that are not, not going to be helpful for your people today. Help me to remember the things that will be. And I pray that those who are far, Lord, would come near by the Holy Spirit today. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Now, before we get into the text itself, it's important to get our bearings. And our text today is about God 
coming to us in the midst of the most basic of our needs, food and water. And the entire episode is something of a, something of a sandwich. There's, there's no pun intended there. But the first section, Exodus 15, 22 to 27, which Bass read for us, is about water. The next section, all of chapter 16, is going to be about food. And then we make another turn about water at the end uh, of, of this uh, portion of Scripture, 17, 1 to 7. And so let me read for us again from Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and, it, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen, if you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And here we have the first interaction uh, between the people and Moses in our text today. They're brought to the edge of death by dehydration. And so we can't imagine how they must have been feeling at this point with running water. I can, I can, Guess if you're tuning in, particularly if you're tuning in from Australia, you are getting clean water. You are not in doubt. You are not anxious about where you're going to get your next cup of water. You know, they were just singing a few days ago about being freed. I mean, you remember this? Yahweh, Yahweh, your name, right? You, you rescued us miraculously and we sung this. We said, sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And here we are. We've been walking towards this wilderness, and there is no water. We're thirsty. You can imagine. Uh, the text doesn't say, but you can imagine the, the old are fainting. Our kids are desperately dehydrated. I mean, you saved us at the Red Sea. What? To just let us die a few days later? But then they find water, life, the source of life. And, and this must have been how, how they reacted, right? They, they found water and then, and then they drink it. And then what a disappointment. And this is a pattern this is a pattern that will repeat throughout their wilderness wanderings. It occurs here where they begin to grumble to Moses and they say, what shall we drink? I mean, can we even enter into that kind of desperation? 
So often we will treat the Israelites, these Israelites unfairly, when we often find the very same dynamic operating in our own lives. The fact that they are grumbling is not surprising whatsoever. That's a dynamic that we expect, that we experience, and often for much, much, much lesser things. God forbid your Amazon Prime package takes a bit longer than usual. What is surprising, though, is Yahweh's response to their grumbling. That's what's most surprising here. I mean, I'm expecting God to be angry or at least a bit annoyed, just a little bit peeved. I mean, I just rescued you. I, I mean, I, part, I parted the, the sea. And, I mean, do you remember you walked through dry ground and like I, like I let the sea drown all of Pharaoh's... I mean, do you remember that? Or, or like... Are we on the same page? Are we even reading the same book here? But he doesn't do that. Rather, he offers grace. He offers a solution. A solution that was already available in their natural environment. And he tells Moses to take a piece of wood and to throw it in the water. And the bitter water becomes sweet, becomes miracle. And this was a miracle of sort, but maybe not the one, uh, not the kind that we're normally accustomed to. This was Yahweh leading Moses to rearrange the created order in order to provide life-giving water to people. The wood itself was probably bitter, which then uh, it affected the pH balance, which was out of whack of the water, which made it bitter, uh, making it drinkable again. And while this may seem like I'm trying to downplay the miraculous, quite the opposite. Listen, God doesn't need a piece of wood to make water sweet. Like when God came to us, let me remind you that his first miracle was turning water into what? Into wine. He needs no piece of wood. And yet he uses this, the natural creation to bring about the supernatural. You know, I love the way the biblical commentator Terence Fratham puts it when he says this, and bear with me with the length of this quote, but it's powerful. He says, The force of the biblical testimony is that God is the creator and has made the natural order in such a way that it, it's, it has capacities such as this. Moreover, the text suggests that human beings need to be alert to the potential resources within creation itself for resolving such problems. God is at work, he continues, in the world in such a way that people are led to such discoveries. Most people today would ascribe them solely to scientific achievement. Maybe in our communities, we would ascribe them simply to just direct divine intervention. But the biblical testimony, however, is that God is never absent from such endeavors. But God does not do such work in independence from human questing, from knowledge, from imagination and ingenuity. God's healing is not an unmediated divine activity in this case. God makes use of what is available in the world to accomplish what is right and good. I love that. God makes use of what is available in the world to accomplish what is right and good. 
And here, Yahweh, in the face of a grumbling people, doesn't punish them, but offers them a solution. The people grumble in the wilderness, and, and ultimately we'll see how that ends up deforming them as they continue to grumble and making them unfit to be the conduits of God's blessing to the world. But in this case, right here in our text, this is grace confronting and overcoming grumbling. And it's at this point where Yahweh gives them a preview of the type of relationship, the type of partnership that he is to have with his people. One that involves, involves conditions. If this, then that. It says this in Exodus 15, 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am Yahweh the Lord your healer. You see, obedience matters. And obedience isn't some kind of detached or simply external reality. Obedience is born out of a heart that loves, a heart that already knows that it is love. Notice that the rescue through the waters of the Red Sea was accomplished before any such conditional statements were uttered by Yahweh regarding his new partnership with Humanity, And this is what we need to understand, that our obedience matters. Not, and our obedience is not simply a personal, moral issue. Our obedience matters because people matter. Mission matters. And obedience to God isn't arbitrary. Obedience is a means by which we partner with God for the flourishing of the world. I want to say that again, that obedience is a means by which we partner with God for the sake of the world, for the flourishing of the world. And so they arrive at this place called Elam, an Edenic place, and it's a picture, a sneak peek of God's ultimate purpose. Uh, God's ultimate purpose. Yahweh is set out to rescue Israel. But not just for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of the world. These 12 springs of water, these 70 palm trees. And if you were an ancient Israelite, if we can try to uh, just get into their minds and, and wrestle with, the, with an idea of trying to read this through their eyes, their, their imaginations would have been set ablaze at this point. I mean, 12 springs of water, is, it's a hyperlink to Israel. And 70 palm trees is a hyperlink to the nations. In Genesis chapter 10, uh, there, it's the, the lineage of Noah and, and how many um, nations were there. Take a guess. 70, right? This is a picture of God's ultimate purpose and aim to be with his creation, not only Israel, but his whole creation. This is a picture of life. This is a picture of abundance. This is a picture of rest. But alas, it's just a picture. The Israelites set out again, and this time from Elam, 
into the wilderness of sin between Elam and Sinai. And now at this point, the heat is turned up. The heat is turned up on, on Moses particularly and, and on Yahweh, uh, but Moses being the, intermediary, uh, uh, the person who comes between, the intermediary between the people and God, the heat is turned up. Remember, in the previous cycle, it said that the people grumbled against Moses. But here the narrator tells us in uh, uh, 16 verse 2 says this, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. By this point, they've been on the road for about six weeks, and food is beginning to be scarce. Uh, it's running out. And they go back to their old ways of saying, oh, it would have been so much better to be in Egypt. Would, is what, what they say in, in verse 3, would that, uh, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's like, come on, guys. Like the sea, the army and Pharaoh, the water I gave you, the 12 springs, the palm trees. And now you think that I'm going to do all that just to bring you just a little bit further into the wilderness to whack you. I mean, Israel is paranoid as hell. It feels like Israel is, is in a gangster Martin Scorsese film, and uh, they're in the passenger seat. They're not driving, they're not in the back seat, they're in the passenger seat, and they're being driven out into uh, the bush, into the wilderness, and, and they're just so afraid that as they keep on driving into this deserted place, that, that God's MO is to kill them. And what is God's response to them this time? Check this out. Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now, I'm not sure if uh, Yahweh is privy to, to, you know, modern parenting techniques of putting negative behavior on extinction. But Yahweh here is like, listen, I hear you and here you go. Bread comes in the morning, meat in the evening. But Moses wants to make sure that Israel knows that Yahweh's reactions are not what they deserve. Their grumbling is yet again met with what? With grace. L listen to Moses and tell me he's not getting frustrated himself with the people. He says this, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your what? Your grumbling against the Lord. For, uh, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses, when the Lord, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against them, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before Yahweh, the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling, right? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Let me remind you, you're grumbling, you're grumbling, but he has heard you. You're grumbling, you're grumbling, you're grumbling. And Moses puts this here six times in three verses. That even as they are in the wilderness and grumbling, God remains near. 
And Yahweh gives his people some instructions. They're not to gather more than what they need for the day. They, they're only supposed to go out, get enough for what they need for their families, some more, some less. But that's it. Because you're to rest on the Sabbath. Something that was foreign to them as newly freed slaves. Remember, they're only about six, seven weeks in. They've never met Sabbath. They don't know what it means to rest. They were being worked to the bone, and then they've been walking for over six weeks. But here, God calls the Sabbath holy. But as you could take, as you would know, uh, people begin to hoard. And Moses said to them this in verse 19. Let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was very angry with them. I mean, bro, I just said to not do like I just said it don't keep it and yet they do and then after not being told after rather after being told to not go out on the sabbath right like I told you don't go out on the sabbath gather extra on friday on the sabbath you're not to go out and look for more manna this happened. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And it's just like, this text is not meant to uh, uh, kind of bolster up the people of Israel. From the very beginning, from the very inception, they could not obey. They could not listen. And while this text here doesn't say at all that God gets angry, it says Moses gets angry, you can sense God's even own frustration beginning to well. He is slow to anger, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says. It doesn't say that anger is absent from his response to his people who continually go against even their own best interests. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Verse 28. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, and therefore on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And they finally listen. I mean, they listen to resting. They take a day off. So the people rested on the seventh day. And we think hope, progress. They're, they're beginning to get it. But then they move on again. And we've seen already this pattern twice where they move from one location to another. And this pattern emerges of the people grumbling and God being gracious. We have a grumbling people and a gracious God. And it ends both, both cycles from uh, uh, chapter 15, two, 22 to 27, and chapters 16, 1 to 36, they end in the same way. There's this grumble, there's grace, and then they rest. There's grumble, and then grace, and then they rest. Uh, but this cycle is going to end a little differently in Exodus 17, 1 to 7. We've seen this pattern already bear out 
twice. The people of Israel, they move out, they grumble, God responds in grace, and then they enter in some sort of peace. They move on now from the wilderness of sin, and they camp out at this place called Rephidim. And there, again, they're met with a lack of water. And this time, there's not even bitter water to turn into drinkable water. And the intensity here rises. The heat rises here. I mean, to, to the point where now they're not only grumbling, but they're quarreling with him. They're quarreling with Moses. And yet again, God, and, and, and they're quarreling with Moses to the point, man, to the point where, where he's like, like, they're ready to stone me. Like, they're ready to, to kill me now. And yet, God meets their need. In the same way that God tells Moses to strike the Nile to make that water undrinkable, uh, God now tells Moses, strike a rock and drinkable water will flow. But the narrator throws us a curveball because this section doesn't end, like I said, like, like the other ones do. This section ends with this scathing question. Just listen. Like they were saved, they were rescued. We've been through it over and over again. Bitter water turns sweet, then quail, they get meat, they get bread to the full. And then they get to this place, Rephidim, and then they have no water. Moses strikes the rock, water comes out. And you would expect maybe another, you know, Exodus 15, praise, a praise and worship night, you know. But this is how it ends. Is the Lord with us or not? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you try to enter into Moses' experience, into Yahweh's experience? Like, what do you mean is Yahweh with us or not? Like, every single time your backs have been up against the wall, haven't I come through for you? And we don't have time, but the rest of the chapter is God coming through yet again when they defeat the Amaleks at Rephidim. But over and over again, the people grumble and Yahweh responds in grace. And as the story goes, we'll see how this persistent grumbling will bring Yahweh to a place where he allows the next generation to enter the promised land, but this generation will all die in the desert. Because in the end, grumbling is corrosive to the soul. It's destructive to your imagination, and it shrinks the heart's capacity for thankfulness, which is at the heart of love. Ultimately, this generation will end up destroying itself as they continually, continually test the Lord, continually refuse to heed the loyal love of Yahweh. It's not a happy ending here. But what can we learn about these cycles? The Apostle Paul, he reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, these things happen to them, speaking about the Israelites. These things happen to them, and they were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. 
So what's the warning? What's the lesson here? And I'll say a couple things. First, life is a wilderness. Life is hard. But we often expect to be spared from the vicissitudes of life when we give our lives to Jesus. We expect our life to kind of float on the clouds, be, be easy for us. As if becoming a Christian comes with terms and conditions that stipulate that we are above uh, normal struggles of living in a chaotic and dysfunctional world that is ruled by the power of sin. And with that expectation, it's no wonder that our lives are filled with grumbling and complaints about how God is not meeting our needs as if he owes us anything and hasn't given us everything. Life is a wilderness, and we're all right now experiencing a type of wilderness that the world has never seen. There have always been plagues. There has always been pandemics. There have always been disease and war and famine. But because of the interconnectedness of our world, we are all feeling the weight far above and beyond what any of our ancestors may have felt because we know about what's happening in Afghanistan. We know about what's happening in Haiti. We hear about the mudslides in South America. We hear about the pandemic and how it is affecting all different parts of our world. We are carrying a lot in this day and age. And if it wasn't enough to bear the weight of a global crisis, we are experiencing our own crises. Job and income insecurity. Some of us have lost family members recently. We live with the constant anxiety of COVID-19. I mean, I'm here all by myself tonight. Some of us are going through a divorce or a separation. Stress has been at an all-time high with parents trying to juggle working from home and domestic duties and home learning, trying to remain calm and connected with your children as you navigate these waters and transitions. It's hard. Some of us have never been as constantly and consistently disappointed as we have been recently. Our travel plans have been canceled. Some of you, I know, have had to postpone the wedding that you have been working so hard for and looking forward to. Some of you are aching for community, for a hug, for healthy touch, for gaze that is not communicated through pixels. There's chronic pain, there's relational tension, there is disappointment. You see, I doubt that any of us are worried about where we're going to get our next cup of clean water, yet our souls are dehydrated. And some of us may be in a spiritual wilderness. And you may easily identify with the Israelites in the season. Maybe, maybe grumbling here and there has seeped so deep into the culture of your tongue that it's become more of a personality trait than, rather than something you just do once in a while. And what we need to realize is that we are just like the Israelites. And all, and all of this, all of this struggle often comes to us after we've been saved. We, I mean, listen, we have been saved from the power of sin. 
We have been rescued from the throes of the devil. We have been delivered from hell. We have been released from the penalty of our sins. We have experienced the salvation of the Lord ourselves, the salvation found only in the blood of Jesus. And yet we'd be like, does God really love me? I mean, does he like me? Is he, is he with me? You see, we are the Israelites. But if we would just pray for the capacity to understand what God in Christ has done for us. You see, life is a wilderness. It is hard. But we must understand that grumbling is actually bad for you. Grumbling is corro- it's, it's so corrosive to faith, to a faith that can flourish in the wilderness of life. In short, grumbling is not only wrong, right? But it's bad for us. We have a knack of thinking that God arbitrarily calls bad things bad and good things good, but we need more than just moral categories to make sense of our world. Grumbling is bad, not just because God's feelings get hurt, but because our souls are shriveled in the process, and that hurts God more. And God is unequivocally opposed to anything that destroys his own creation. And grumbling prevents us from celebrating the ways that God has been faithful to us, the ways that God has been faithful to you in a billion ways. Complaining makes us small and shrivels the ways that we can respond to our own wounds and the pains of the world. You see, grumbling diminishes our ability to see our own stories with the eyes of grace and faith and hope, and we can't give the world what we don't possess. So life is a wilderness. It's hard. God sees you. He he knows you. He comes near. Grumbling is bad for you. But hear the good news that even through all of this, you, you see this in the life of Israel and you've recognized this in your own life, that God remains near. That this is good news. That God remains near and has overcome the failure of Adam, the failure of Eve, to be the conduit of the flourishing of the world, that God remains near as he overcomes the failure of Abraham, that God remains near as he overcomes the failure of Israel. And in Christ, God has come near to do what humanity could not do for themselves. I love the way, and that's a, that's a Eugene Peterson quote. I, I ripped that off. He says this, that salvation is God doing for humanity what humanity cannot do for itself. And ultimately, God comes near in history in the person and the work and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, watch out, this is what he does. He recapitulates the story of Israel. That's right. I used the big word. He recapitulates the story of Israel because Lord knows that if it was left to me, if it was left to you, if it was left to us, 
we would be in the same position that Israel was in. But DJ Nazareth comes and hits remix on the story of Israel. I can't believe I called Jesus DJ Nazareth, but listen, he uh, to remix a story, that is what it means to recapitulate it, to take it up and to replay the story in a different note, in a different way. And Jesus recapitulates the story of Israel because he also enters into a wilderness. Come with me to Matthew chapter 4. Now the sermon is beginning. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But what does Jesus say? What is the answer? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus takes up the story of Israel and he doesn't fail and he doesn't grumble. But what does he do? He obeys. Jesus is driven into the wilderness. He is tested just like Israel was. But where Israel failed, where you and I fail every single day, Jesus succeeds. The perfect sinless son of God being deprived and rather than performing a miracle himself, the way that he had done for the people of Israel, he lives according to his own word that humanity will not live, should not live, cannot live off of bread alone, but off of every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. And what does that mean? It means trust. It means allegiance. It means faith. It means that we trust the good word of the Lord over us and that we live accordingly. And this is our only hope. Humanity cannot solve the very problems that humanity has created. But God, even in our grumbling, comes near. So whatever you may be going through in this season, hear this. It does not depend on you. You need to hear this. This is good news. It does not depend on you. Jesus has accomplished for us what we could never accomplish in our own strength. But the story doesn't end there. God does not come near in Jesus just to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he hits the eject button and, and goes away into the heavenly realm. No, while it does not depend on us, God calls us to partner with him to do what Israel failed to do. Let me say that again, that while it doesn't depend on us, God calls us to partner with him to do what Israel failed to do. And now that God has come near in Christ, now that we have said yes to the finished work of Jesus, the Messiah, we are now equipped with the Spirit of God to mediate the presence of God to the world. This is good news. The salvation of the world does not depend on you. But God does call us to partner with him to embody this salvation in and for the world. And I don't know about you. I don't know what other vision of your life you may have. Maybe the ceiling of your ambition is to own a home. Maybe the ceiling of your ambition is to climb to the top of your field of your career. Maybe that's the, the, the height of your ambition. Maybe your ambition is to be surrounded by grandkids. All these things are really good things. 
But partnership with the creator of the universe and the renewal of all things, whereby I can use everything God has given me for that purpose, there is no greater call on your life. If we had an altar, we'd be doing an altar call right now. But I pray that if you don't know Jesus, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, that you would draw near to him now, that you would repent and give your life to him. And if you do know Jesus, that you would draw near and that you would repent and that you would continually give your life to him. Because partnership with the creator of the universe and the renewal of the world of the universe is the greatest call on our life. That is why, we're, that, that is why we were created. You know, Anchor Church, know this. Life is hard. And grumbling, yes, it's bad for you. But understand this, that God has drawn near in Christ and it doesn't depend on you. And we are free now. We have been freed by the Holy Spirit in order to partner with God, to obey Him, to love Him, to mediate His presence, to show Him to the world. He is with you. He is good. Yes, life is hard. We are living in a wilderness, particularly now. Grumbling is not just wrong, but bad for you. Yes, but listen to the good news. The beautiful thing is that God remains near. He is near. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in my own heart, re re renew and redeem me, Lord. Do a special work in my own life, in the life of our community. But I pray that as you do that, Lord, that we would take this out into the world. Masks on, whatever. We can share the gospel with masks on. We can share the gospel online. However we can, Lord, may we be the kind of people that take your beauty your gospel, your goodness to the world. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for all these things in your name. Amen and amen. Bless you, church.